the Christ of Christmas. What's it all about? That's the title for a short series of five messages that I'm going to be bringing each Sunday evening until the middle of December, concluding on the 13th. On the Sunday evening after that, we hope to be holding a carol service. We're not quite sure what form that will take yet, but uh, as in all things, we look to the Lord and as he wills, well, he'll enable us to do something. But what is the Christ in Christmas all about? Now, to help us answer that question, each week we're going to take one verse from the hymn that we've just sung, written by Philip Doddridge 300 years ago. Now, the age of the hymn doesn't matter because unlike many things in this world, the truths upon which that hymn is based and the truths that the hymn contains are eternal and unchanging truths because all of them are found in the Bible. So each Sunday we'll be using that hymn to introduce a particular theme or topic and then having done that we'll be turning to the Bible and to see that that really is what it teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that hymn began with these words. Hark, the glad sound, the Saviour comes, the Saviour promised long. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. And the theme that so obviously comes out of that verse is this. The Christ of Christmas is the promised saviour. We had a number of, uh, a reading earlier uh, from 2 Timothy and he talks there about something which was decided concerning the Lord Jesus Christ before time began. And as you read through the Gospels, the Gospel writers, you'll find, often quote verses of Scripture from the Old Testament. And they use this little phrase, that it might be fulfilled. So they say something about the life of Christ. And then they say that it might be fulfilled and they quote something from the Old Testament which is directly relevant to that thing concerning Christ. There are many occasions when the events of Christ's life and ministry and the words that he says are actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Even when that little phrase that it might be fulfilled isn't included or used. But if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll start to recognise where those quotes from the Old Testament are to be found and what it is they relate to. And what I want to show you this evening is three things. We're going to actually look at the promises because Jesus is the promised saviour so what are the promises? Then we're going to consider him as the saviour, 
And then we're going to think about the reason to rejoice. So first of all, the promises. Because the promises come in the form of prophecy in the Old Testament. The prophets were men appointed by God to be his spokesman in the world. They were drawn from the nation of Israel, which was a nation which God himself had established in the world, beginning with Abraham, or Abram as he is right at the start, in order that through them he might make himself known to the whole world eventually in a very particular and special way. And although the ministry of the prophets was in their immediate context addressing the people of Israel, it also had a much wider and far, uh, more, a more far-reaching application because Israel was a channel through which God would bring promised blessing and hope to the entire world. Think of the, the ripples extending outwards after you've thrown a pebble into the middle of a really flat, still pond of water. The pebble first lands as God declares to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 that a descendant of Eve would one day bruise his head. In other words, defeat and overthrow him. And from there, the ripples begin to move outwards. One of the next major ripples is when God makes a promise to Abram that from him will come a great nation through which all nations shall be blessed. And the promise is confirmed to Isaac and Jacob, his descendants, and the ripples move out a little further. A covenant is established with King David that one of his descendants will be a king who will reign forever over an eternal kingdom and the ripples move out a little further and in many of the psalms there is much talk of salvation and redemption and there are verses which clearly speak of Christ and there are words which Christ will speak even some when he's hanging on the cross and out and out go the ripples of promise and then after the reign of King David, and over a period of approximately 400 years or so, you have all the books of the prophets that you find in the second half of the Old Testament, as it's recorded in our Bible. And all kinds of details start to come out concerning this one who is being promised. This one about whom and around whom all of these promises are found. He's to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Saviour. All kinds of things are foretold and promised. And out move the ripples until there's the very last of those prophets who actually appears at the beginning of the New Testament, John the Baptist. Now, of course, he will begin his ministry like all the other prophets speaking about one who is to come after him. But unlike the others, 
he has the privilege of being able to set his eyes upon and point his finger to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, those ripples have reached the edge. Imagine for a moment that you're a police officer investigating a crime and you are trying to put together a body of evidence which is sufficient so that you can make a viable case to hand it over to the prosecution services and they will have sufficient to take the matter to court. How much evidence do you think you would need? What sort of evidence would you need in order that you were going to be able to convince a jury of somebody's guilt in a court of law? Things circumstantial or possibly merely a coincidence? They're not really going to stand up to much scrutiny, are they? They're not going to hold much water. That jury is going to need to see at least several strong indicators that put this person in that place at that time with that motive, that opportunity, sufficient proof to actually demonstrate that they've committed a specific criminal act. So a fairly substantial body of evidence is usually going to be required. Well, what do we read about the promised Saviour in the Old Testament? Well, it's amazing actually, the number of things that are said. And if this promised Saviour is to come into the world, all of these things are going to, be ha- are going to have to be found in the life of this one man. Every single one of them. Listen, he was to be a son born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, and be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. But also, he was to come up from Egypt, Hosea chapter 11. He was someone who would have a ministry in Zebulun, Naphtali and Galilee, Isaiah chapter 9. He would be someone who taught in parables, Psalm 78. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, Psalm 41 and Zechariah chapter 11. He would be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35. Yet he would remain silent before them, Isaiah chapter 53. He would be spat on and beaten, Isaiah chapter 50. He would be mocked and cruelly crucified, Psalm 22. And words that he would speak are quoted. He'd be crucified in the midst of criminals, Isaiah 53 again. On the cross he would be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12, 
but none of his bones would be broken. Psalm 34. And while this is all happening, someone at the foot of the cross will be gambling, <coughs> gambling for his clothes. Psalm 22. He would be wounded, bruised, flogged, and led like a lamb to the slaughter. And this innocent man would be buried in a rich man's grave. But the grave would not hold him, and he would rise again and return to heaven. Psalms 16, 49 and 68. Then read the Gospels as four different writers publish written accounts of events that were witnessed by thousands upon thousands of people, the vast majority of whom are all still alive as those documents begin to circulate for the very first time. And as you read through the four Gospels, every single one of those things mentioned about the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, you will find fulfilled in his life. In his conception, in his birth, in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension back to glory. To go back to our courtroom scenario, just how much more evidence do you want? He, and he alone, is the promised saviour. There's never been another man who walked this earth who could have done what he did and fulfilled all of those items that are listed there in the Old Testament scriptures. But there's more than that because the apostles likewise, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would from time to time also quote from the Old Testament to declare that those particular scriptures were speaking of Christ. Peter states directly in the opening chapter of his first letter that the Old Testament prophets were speaking of the grace that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostles also confirm for just how long those plans and purposes had all been in the heart of God. We read these things in, in 2 Timothy, we read it before, and in Titus chapter 1 as well. Paul is writing, he says, Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. The reason God was able to make all of those promises through, throughout the Old Testament Scriptures is because everything about Christ had already been decided long before those Scriptures were ever written. T writing to Titus, Paul says the same thing he says to Titus in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
promised before time began. Peter again, in the first chapter of his first letter, he says this, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world and manifest in these last times for you. Jesus is the one promised and he's the promised saviour. When the fullness of the time had come, Paul said to the Galatian church, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He's going to redeem, he's going to save, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There is no doubt at all that the Christ of Christmas is the promised one and he's the promised saviour. The baby born in Bethlehem will, in the words of the angel, save his people from their sins. The Apostle Paul was in no doubt that he and the church and all who follow after them in their tradition have one key task above all others, and that is to proclaim Christ as the one and only Saviour for this sinful world. That message, this gospel, this Jesus, this Christ is to be preached and proclaimed. Now, never mind coronavirus. All of humanity is riddled with a deadly disease. It's a disease which cuts us off from God. Now, we've suffered a degree of separation, haven't we, in recent months because of a disease. Let me tell you, the separation that we have suffered and put up with in the last few months is nothing compared to that which separates us from God and the separation that we have from him. It's a disease which cuts us off from God, bringing us no end of troubles in this life, including coronavirus, and no end of torment in the life to come, which will be no life at all. It's a disease of the heart and of the mind and of the soul. They who were created in the beautiful purity of God's image have become marred and wicked and ugly. They who were completely good have become completely bad. They who were near to God could not have wandered further away. They who once were only ever concerned for the glory of God are now only concerned 
for the glory of themselves. They who once loved God now only love themselves. They who once walked God's way now walk their own way. They who once relied upon God's wisdom and truth rely upon their own. And we couldn't have made a bigger mess if we'd tried. Those who once lived in loving obedience to their Creator now live in a, a hateful disobedience. And who are they who I've just been talking about? It's every single one of us. All of us since Adam have been born like that in sin. And the wages of sin is death. And this holy and just and righteous God of heaven must bring sin under his judgment. And the soul that sins must die. And there's another great promise in the Bible about a great day of reckoning that is coming. And as surely as Jesus came into this world in the fulfilment of all of those promises that we mentioned in the Old Testament, that day of judgment is just as sure to come. Now it might be when you hear these kinds of things being spoken about that you think that God is very slack and uncaring in permitting all of the evil which exists in the world. The way that God allows corrupt people of every sort to get away with all kinds of wickedness. Well, his timetable might not be the one that you wished it was, but his judgment is coming. You might, on the other hand, be one of those who snub your nose at God, thinking that you've got away with all of your filthy, deceitful ways. But his judgment is coming. There is none righteous, and all will give an account to God. Listen to what the Bible says. Here's Paul writing to the Roman church. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 2, You're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath, that's 
God's anger in action in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He will render to each one according to their deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honour and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. What's coming towards them? Indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man who does evil. And the, the whole Bible concludes with a revelation given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John right towards the end of the whole Bible in Revelation chapter 20. This is what John sees. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. John sees all of humanity every man, woman and child who has ever walked this earth, who has ever been conceived in the womb, they're all there standing before God on the day of judgment. And books were opened because in heaven a record has been kept. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Two types of book in heaven. In this one, the works and deeds and thoughts of every man, woman and child who has lived a sinful life in this world with no thought for God. They've remained unrepentant of their sins. They've lived in disobedience and they've never sought to glorify God in anything that they've done. Every colour and shade of sin is there. But they're all written down in this one book and all will fall under God's judgment because of their sin. But there's another book which is called the Book of Life. And there are, there's a huge number of names written in this second book. Now everyone written in this book is every bit as sinful as those written in this other book on this side, but with one big difference. All of these have turned from their sin in repentance and faith and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them have acknowledged their sin before God and looked to Christ as the one who died in their place on the cross for their forgiveness, that he paid the penalty for their sins. And because of his blood shed for them, they are forgiven and pardoned and redeemed. They are the ones who will safely be taken into heaven. They are the ones of the kingdom who we were thinking about this morning. But you see, it's, it's this book on this side 
that is the reality for all of us. Because that is where all of us begin. That is where all of us are born in our sins. And that's why Philip Doddridge wrote, Hark, the glad sound, the Saviour comes. It's because of that book and because of that day. Because God so loved the world, demonstrated his love for the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. And while we were still sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, the one without sin, who took our sins upon himself, that whoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life, that we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ. You transferred from this side to this side. Your name is wiped off that book because it's written in this one. Those unbelievable words of Isaiah 53 have been gloriously fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows to the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And now we can understand why another Philip, Philip Bliss, wrote a hymn based upon that chapter, and started and ended the verse, the first verse, like this, Man of Sorrows, What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners, to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Saviour. And that's the reason to rejoice. And this is my third and brief concluding point. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The penalty for our sins has been paid. Our guilt is forgiven. It's a gift of God's grace. The promised Saviour has come. Is this what you'll be rejoicing in this Christmas? Is this what the Christ of Christmas means to you? Have you turned in repentance from your life of sin to newness of life in Christ by faith and trusting in what he has done for you? In Christ, that disease of your soul, it can be healed You can be restored and reconciled to God and he will come to you and take up his rightful place in you, not only as your saviour, but also as the God and Lord that he is. And that's the wonderful thing. Because 
remember this God and Saviour who must also be Lord in your life so loves you that he was prepared to go to the cross for you. Why would you not prepare a throne in your heart for him? If you do, you also will have a new glad song to sing.